The scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 19. It's on page 27 of your pew Bible. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they would not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. The brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Then he told his father as well as his brothers. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his fathers kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. And so he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. And this is the word of the Lord. As we started our service this morning, and for many of us who have been born and bred Lutheran, we know that today is a very special day. Today is what Lutherans and other Reformed churches call Reformation Day. Traditionally celebrated on the final Sunday in October, it commemorates a decisive moment in the history of the Christian faith. 
October 31st, 1517, the date upon which Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Brother Martin, as you recall, was trying to affect a wider conversation, a public debate on specific issues of corruption within the church. But it's important each year as we come to Reformation Day that we remember that we set aside this time to acknowledge more than just a particular day or a particular period in time. This Sunday is about acknowledging that the body of Christ is ever-growing into the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We gather together to confess that the church is always reformed and always being reformed, even as we mourn the divisions in the one true holy and Catholic church. We assemble in hope as we celebrate the Holy Spirit's work in reviving and reorienting the global community of faith in all generations, whenever it goes astray. Though we remain divided, our prayers are joined together today, perhaps more than any other, in seeking that God's people everywhere will be united in following Christ, being rooted in God's word, and fulfilling the great commission of the kingdom. It is with the spirit of the Reformation in view that we will continue our exploration of the twin themes of covenant and kingdom, of relationship and responsibility. And again, covenant and kingdom, I've continued to lift up before you this, uh, these sermons are building upon one another. This idea of relationship, covenant, responsibility are a helpful way of understanding the whole of the narrative of the Bible. And we've spent the last few weeks delving into the meaning and significance of covenant. Covenant, I hope you've understood, is more than an idea to be grasped with our minds or to warm our hearts. It's a way of life to be lived. Most of what we read in the Bible makes little sense if we miss or ignore the reality that God is our Heavenly Father and that He has invited us into a relationship of intimacy and blessing that reveals our true identity as His children. Our true identity as His beloved children, which we receive from our Father, challenges us with a call to radical obedience. But to be clear, as we've heard, we don't obey God for our identity, somehow earning our identity out of our obedience. No, it is out of our dependence upon the security of that primary relationship, that new identity, that we are enabled to trust God fully and obey Him even in the most challenging of circumstances. We witness that most dramatically through the unsettling story of Abraham taking his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah. Today, we begin a deeper look at the reality of kingdom, God's kingdom in our lives. Covenant always comes first, but it is not the end. Our journey of faith begins with relating to God personally, covenant, but it leads to representing God powerfully. That is kingdom. The story of Joseph shows how this can happen. In Joseph, we see the beginning of the unfolding revelation of God's kingship expressed through people like us. Now, as we heard, Joseph, as the story goes, was something of a dreamer. But not a dreamer in the way that we normally use that term. For as we heard, Joseph's visions of the future were God-given. As Joseph looked toward the horizon, he did not just perceive possibilities... He clearly and vividly saw realities that were yet to happen, outcomes of circumstances and events that no human person could have predicted or anticipated. But as we heard this morning, something derailed the immediacy of his visions right from the start, a very strained family dynamic. <laughs> Joseph 
is the 11th of Jacob's sons. A 12th will be on the way soon, but for now, Joseph is the youngest of his brothers. And yet, as we heard, was Mary Jo read, though he may be last in the pecking order, he clearly is not the least of his brothers. As Jacob looks upon his children, his preference, his favorite, is clearly Joseph. Such favoritism, perhaps suspected by his brothers all along, becomes undeniable when Jacob gives his 17-year-old son a multicolored coat. Some translations read, a coat with long sleeves. Whether it's a coat with long sleeves or a coat bearing the tribal colors of the family, such a richly ornamented gift was typically given to the firstborn, not the youngest son. A coat like that needed to be looked after. You weren't given a jacket like that with the expectation that you'd be working and sweating out in the fields all day. Having a coat like that was like wearing a suit in a factory. It indicated that the wearer was a manager and not a worker, a supervisor, a superior. Not surprisingly, such blatant partiality led to growing tension between Joseph and his older brothers. As you heard it read, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. The straw, however, that broke the camel's back wasn't the gift of the coat, however. Joseph himself ignited the situation through the way he talked aloud about his dreams. Even as the younger, the youngest sibling, Joseph bragged about his first dream to his brothers. He wasn't subtle as he basically told them that one day he would rule over them. The result? They hated him all the more. Unfortunately, Joseph wasn't done sharing. I don't know how many of us grew up with siblings, but you kind of think you'd get a hint the first time around. But Joseph wasn't done sharing. He has another dream, and he wants to share it. <laughs> a dream in which he sees the stars, the moon, and they're all revolving around him. Typical teenager, right? <laughs> and what does Joseph do? Joseph boasts that his future rule would not only be over his older brothers, but also even over his father and mothers as well. As his brother's jealousy and envy increases, even Jacob rebukes his favorite son. Things finally came to a head, as you heard, when Joseph sent, was sent by Jacob to check on his older brothers. Immediately, all of the brothers set out to harm Joseph. In fact, their plan was, as we heard, to kill him. But as the story goes on, it's Reuben, the eldest son, who talks them out of murdering their own kin. And so instead, if you've never heard this story before, instead the 11 brothers throw Joseph into a cistern. We're going to look at the whole first half of Joseph's story today. They end up throwing him into a cistern, which is this huge, giant pit for collecting and holding water. Not much later, as they've thrown him into this cistern, an Ishmaelite band of slave traders wander by, relatives, <laughs> and the brothers sell Joseph into slavery for the equivalent of about eight ounces of silver. They cover up their treachery by taking the coat, the sign of favoritism that Jacob had given to Joseph, and they cover it in goat's blood. And then they go back and pretend to their father that their brother has been killed by a wild animal. Deeper than the pit he was thrown into was Joseph's despair at being nearly killed and then sold into slavery by his brothers. What's going on here? How did this happen? I mean, if we step back for a second, wasn't God the one who had given Joseph these dreams? Weren't these visions meant to serve as the Lord's calling upon Joseph's life? 
to rule and exercise authority in God's behalf over the greatest nation on earth at the time, Egypt, if you know this story. Isn't this, wasn't this all God-given? Why then is everything in Joseph's life going so wrong? Why then the disconnect? The answer is though Joseph's God-given dreams were big, Joseph's own vision was still limited. Joseph failed to recognize that he was being given the authority of the kingdom, of God's reign in his life. God did indeed give Joseph his dreams, but those dreams were never about Joseph's own greatness. As a teenager, 17 years old, Joseph wasn't mature enough to appreciate that the authority he was being given was not his own. And instead of focusing on how great his power could be to serve others, Joseph fixated on how great it would be to be powerful. And so he boasted, and dare we even say lorded his greatness over his brothers and even his father. As Joseph saw himself as bigger and his family as smaller, his vision became limited as he perceived his authority and power as putting himself rather than God at the center of the universe. And as a result, his splintered family fractured even more, so deeply as we know that it would take years to overcome. Beloved, how about us? How about us? Who's at the center of our universe? Is it God our Father? Or is it me, myself, and I? As we well know, as we've talked about, and I know I've ruffled some feathers in saying it so provocatively, as we well know, being self-centered is part of our flawed human nature. Being self-centered in many ways is the essence of sin. As we've talked about, no one has to teach us how to want everything for ourselves. We don't have to be taught that. No one has to teach us how to put ourselves at the center of the universe. We do it naturally, or perhaps we should say unnaturally. It can be very easy for us to live according to our own agenda and in so doing to make our opinions, our needs bigger and the concerns of others to be smaller. But God our Father doesn't call us to be mere believers in him. Jesus says, follow me. Jesus doesn't say believe in me. Jesus says, follow me. Ours is a covenant, a relationship, an identity Obedience and authority that comes with responsibility. We are part of something larger than ourselves, our Father's kingdom. Our responsibility is to become the representatives of our dad's reign here on earth as it is in heaven. And that means that the dreams that we are given, the vision that God provides, is not just for me. It's for him. It's for his children like us. The authority and power that come with our God-given responsibility are not a possession that we keep for, or use for ourselves. Such authority, such vision should point us upward and outward as well as inward, bringing God's kingdom into reality. By way of teasing this out, last Sunday, and, and I've mentioned this similarly in previous sermons, but last Sunday I said something very particular about this idea that it's, it's sort of our default mode to be self-centered to focus on ourselves. And I raised that point by talking about the upcoming elections. And I made reference to the fact that as we get hot and heavy as the elections come up, all of us will default at some point to saying, well, I just want what's best for the country. I made that point last week. And, and again, this is 
fantastic that so many people pushed back on that statement of me saying that I want what's best for the country because I basically said, well, when we say that, when I want what's best for the country, really what that means is I want what's best for me. Because what I want, what, when I say what I, I want what's best for the country, it happens to line up so interestingly with the very, very things I believe. Now, many people pushed back on that. And they pushed back and they basically said, so what are you basically saying? Are you basically saying that we shouldn't have opinions, that we shouldn't, be in, shouldn't have strong feelings about how we should vote and how things should go politically? And my response to them and my response to clarify by way of making the same point yet again is, no, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be political or we shouldn't have opinions or we shouldn't even have agendas. We naturally have them. My point was, if we say, I want what's best for the country, in the forming of our opinions and our agendas, please, somewhere, can we make sure to ask, what's God's agenda? Please, somewhere, let's ask, what does God think what's best for the country? Because the reality is, if we understand how covenant and kingdom work, our agenda, our dreams and our visions don't come out of isolation. They come out of being close to our Father. But for many of us, we have our opinions and our agendas, and then we look for God to bless what we've already decided, what we already want. That's Joseph's problem right here. He wasn't mature enough to understand the responsibility that he was given. And as you know the rest of the story, he's carted off to a foreign land. And as the story goes on, there's some initial glimmers of hope for Joseph as he quickly finds favor with his master, a man named Potiphar, the chief of security for all Egypt. Joseph is put in charge of Potiphar's household. But despite a promising start in his new job, Joseph's difficulties only increase as Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape after several unsuccessful advances on her part. And so despite his exceptional service to his master, Joseph is thrown into prison. This is a lesser sentence than would normally have been given. Death is probably more likely. But nonetheless, Joseph is punished for a crime that he didn't commit. And yet, despite the worsening of his circumstances, Joseph continues to see signs that assure him that God, his father, hadn't forgotten about him, hadn't forgotten about him, or the dreams which he had given him long ago. If, if you're familiar with this story, and I encourage you to read 39 through 41 later, you'll notice something that pops out throughout Joseph's story. It begins with Potiphar. As with Potiphar, and then in the prison, we see this scripture that says God was with Joseph and he prospered. Joseph prospers with Potiphar. He, he's granted favor with Potiphar. And then when he's thrown into prison, the scriptures tell us he was granted favor in the eyes of the warden. And as with Potiphar, Joseph eventually is put in charge of everything inside the prison. Repeatedly throughout Joseph's story, going along... From bad to worse, we are told God was with Joseph and he prospered. And it's important that we see what's happening here, even if Joseph doesn't see it at first. Beloved, despite our circumstances, despite our brokenness, despite our own agendas, the covenant never changes. We may come off the rails, others may wrong us, but God remains faithful to us. Our father, our father, in other words, is utterly reliable, totally dependable. He remains with us no matter what. Even though Joseph's pride came before his fall with his brothers, even though Joseph had been taken to another land, into captivity, is in chains as a slave, and is now rotting in prison, the Lord is with him, and he prospers. Now, prosper can be a challenging word for us. 
its meaning may be even a little deceiving. Because the way that it's used in Scripture is not the way that we typically apply it in our own lives. Prosperity in Scripture is often equated with the blessing of a smooth road that opens up before you. Prosperity is equated with the opening up of a smooth road before you. It's, uh, prosperity is equated with an easy yoke or a burden that's light and able to be carried. In other words, beloved, prospering by God's hand has less to do with resources or results, which is typically what we mean by prospering. Prospering has less to do with resources or results, and it has more to do with access and opportunities. To be favored by the Lord, in other words, is to experience God's grace. We need to hear this. It's an important pause in the midst of Joseph's story because experiencing brokenness in our lives is hard. And brokenness will come into all of our lives at some point. Sometimes we are broken by our own pride and selfishness. We are broken by our own foolish choices. Sometimes we are broken by the selfish choices of others, those who abuse, who betray, or ignore us. But when those times come, when those seasons, those experiences of brokenness come upon us, we do not have to bottom out from our own faults, as Joseph did. Not, we do not have to remain, and we will not remain, enslaved or imprisoned by the resentment or expectation of others. No matter how devastating things may get, no matter how much we may find ourselves in the depths of despair, it is never the end of the story with this God. There are always glimmers of hope because of our covenant, our relationship with our Father. That's because God is working in the midst of brokenness to bring redemption. God is working in the midst of brokenness to prepare us for the dreams that he has in store for us, the visions that he has given us. With God as our Father and with recognizing that our Father is more than just our Father, he's the king of the universe, the king of all creation, brokenness can and will lead to breakthrough a deeper ability to trust and be dependent upon him with our lives. My brothers and sisters in Christ, hear the word of the Lord this morning, wherever you may be in your journey. We do not have to be afraid to face our failures and our faults. We don't need to hide our frustrations and our disappointments at the hands of others. Where are we hurting this morning? And we're all hurting to some degree. Where are we giving up? And we all have a tendency to give up. Where have we become convinced this morning of what cannot be healed? Of what is broken in our lives that cannot be redeemed? Is it a lost job? Is it a demotion? Is it an inability to find work at all? Is it a strained relationship? A functional divorce in our lives? the loss of someone in our lives, or just the continued experience by multiple places in our lives of being rejected, abandoned, ignored. Beloved, God doesn't give up on the broken, so we shouldn't give up in the midst of our brokenness. The glory of redemption, the glory of the gospel, is how our Father uses broken people to bring his kingdom to other broken people. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that that happens, that that's possible. But Jesus models this attitude for us. And his death and resurrection show us that this is true. Out of the valley of Jesus' supreme brokenness, from death on the cross to the darkness of a sealed tomb came the breakthrough 
of the kingdom of God truly coming on earth as it is in heaven. Beloved, God can and will use our personal brokenness for kingdom breakthrough. But as we see in Joseph's life, it may not always happen quickly or when we would prefer or like it to. The story goes on, and given Joseph's status and God-given favor, it's not a surprise that the story still comes back to Joseph as two guests, occupants, come into the prison, the royal cupbearer and the baker, and they have been, been struggling with dreams of their own, and because of Joseph's reputation and favor, they come to Joseph. Now, they come to Joseph not knowing, not knowing that Joseph knew a little something about dreams. They come based upon his reputation, but Joseph, in their coming, extends an invitation to them. He says, tell me your dreams. And the cupbaker, bearer, and baker did so, as we know. And Joseph told them what their dreams meant. And you know this story. It was terrible news for the baker, a death sentence, in fact, but good news for the cupbearer, who ended up going to return to the palace to serve Pharaoh. And it says to us at this part of the story, since the cupbearer was returning to, jo- to the seat of power, Joseph asked him for help. Joseph said to the cupbearer, remember me. And show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Subtle. But this encounter reveals that while Joseph was clearly growing in humility and trust, he still had more maturing to do. Joseph was still trying to manage his own identity and destiny. Hey, I did you a solid. Remember me when you get before Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. But if you know this story, you remember, talk is cheap. And the cupbearer forgot Joseph. And so Joseph remained in prison for two more years until when he was 30 years old, everything changed. And Joseph's dreams finally came true. What set everything in motion is another God-given dream. Given not to Joseph this time, but given to the leader of the greatest nation in the world at at that time. Given to Pharaoh of Egypt. Pharaoh, in fact, didn't have one dream. He had two dreams. And these dreams troubled him so greatly that he was fixated on understanding their meaning. But the problem was no one in his kingdom, none of his wisest officials, none of his magicians could interpret the meaning of his dreams. No one could help Pharaoh until the cupbearer remembered Joseph. Summoned from his prison cell, Joseph is called to the seat of power. But by this time, from 17 to 30 years of age, a significant and clearly evident change has taken place within Joseph. As Pharaoh recognizes by reputation Joseph's interpretive power, Joseph acknowledges that his authority comes from God. Earlier he had told the cupbearer and the baker... Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. But when Pharaoh asked Joseph to interpret his dreams, Joseph replied, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. There is a mountain of difference, I would argue, between tell me your dreams and I cannot do it. By saying I cannot do it, And relying on God alone, Joseph showed that he had moved to the edge and he was willing to let God be at the center of his life. 
Joseph finally comes to the place where he realizes that the power to interpret dreams is not his to use outside of his authority to represent God. Joseph was finally living in submission to God. Thus, he was ready to rule in service to God. And as you know, and so God gives Joseph the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and the wisdom to know what to do with that information. Through Pharaoh, the Lord provides Joseph with the authority and power to execute his God-given dreams. And in a stunning turnaround, with just one conversation, Joseph goes from being a model prisoner to being the second most powerful person in all Egypt. Beloved, the visions of greatness Joseph had weren't made up. These dreams were from God. But let's face it. As we've seen, if God had let his dreams for Joseph come true immediately, they would have become a nightmare for everyone, including Joseph. That's because at first his vision was myopic. Joseph focused on how great it would be to be powerful rather than how great his power and responsibility was to help others. He used his dreams as a way not to glorify God, but rather to glorify himself. And that self-centered impulse tore apart his community, his family, farther apart rather than bringing them closer together. But as we've also learned this morning, the Lord didn't abandon Joseph in his failure or his sufferings. The promise of the covenant remained even when the vision of the kingdom was briefly lost. God our Father worked through Joseph's broken dreams to bring redemption, good, out of evil. But God the Father also revealed himself as the king of all things by gradually moving Joseph from the center of his own universe to the edge of the kingdom of heaven. And when that happened, when Joseph yielded, his visions became not nightmares, but sweet dreams as the kingdom authority and power that he was given blessed others and changed the world. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the pattern Joseph lived out is one that happens in and around our lives as well. The dreams and visions that our Father gives us are not so that we can climb climb the ladder of personal success. If we're focusing on ruling our own lives, we will not pursue God's kingdom rule. When we act like everything revolves around us, when we believe that anything else belongs in the center of our universe other than God, our Father, our King, our lives, our relationships will become broken. The church will become corrupt and unhealthy. This was Martin Luther's wake-up call to the church of his day, a church that had moved Jesus from the center of its universe a church that was exercising its authority and power outside the bounds of the kingdom of God. Hence, the rally cries of the Reformation, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, word alone. The legacy of the Reformation is the continual reminder that we as Christians, we as the church, are only on the right path. We are only going in the right direction when we follow the way of the cross rather than the way of the world. God does not only save us. God does not only save us. Salvation is bigger than we make it. It's not just about going to heaven. God doesn't just save us. He calls us to the responsibility of revealing his presence, of representing his interests in this lost, confused, and chaotic world in which we live. 
Our Father works out our salvation by patiently moving us out from the center of our own world to the edge of his kingdom so that we can take the reins of authority and power that our Father seeks to entrust us with and be sent out. But as we know, it's no simple thing to move from being self-centered to God-centered. We learn from Joseph's example that it takes a posture of submission, an attitude of surrender. Following Jesus' beloved involves a conscious decision, an intentional decision to place him at the center of our lives, not just at the beginning of that journey, but every day of our lives. But in the midst of the potholes, the detours, the pitfalls, the valleys, we have also seen this morning that brokenness, brokenness in our own lives leads to breakthrough. God redeems our suffering. God will use our submission to prepare us to assume the kingdom authority and responsibility he has for us. To bring the fulfillment of his future for us. So this morning on this Reformation Sunday, let us hear the rally cry of the Reformation. Let us hear the gospel. We are charged to be ambassadors and emissaries who represent our Father, our King in this world. If we seek first His kingdom, His kingdom, then all we need will be added to us as well. If we surrender our dreams, submit our visions, if we recognize that any authority and power that we have is God-given, we will see the coming kingdom break through more and more in our lives and in our world. More and more of the sad made joyful. More and more of the lost saved. More and more of the sick healed. These are our Father's dreams. This is our King's vision for His kingdom. Beloved, are they ours? Because our Father's kingdom needs a conduit. His kingdom needs a door, and that door is a heart that is humble. That door is a heart that is open, that is submitted to the idea that God is at the center of the universe, not us. Our Father wants to empower us. He looks to give us authority. He desires that we represent Him, not just so that the world would be changed, but rather so that we would be changed first. Beloved, God's reformation of the universe, God's reformation of the church, begins and ends with the transformation of the human heart and mind, one person, one life at a time. Amen? Amen. Amen.